and begin to tell you how many songs there are, how many hymns have been written about the um, two pieces of wood placed together to form that cross. And the wood itself has no power and no magic. But what happened on that cross has the power to change lives for all eternity. There is great power in the cross because our Lord went there for us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to each one of us in this room. Thank you that um, before any of us had ever given you a thought, before we were born, before the worlds were created, you knew what you would do to save us. You knew that you would send your one and only Son, that he would be born into this world in conditions of poverty and grow up in obscurity but that for a brief period of time he would reveal you to the people of Israel and the surrounding areas. And then after having a clear glimpse of who you are, sinful men would take him and nail him to that cross. All by your foreordained plan so that he would bear our sins away. Lord, we are not the same people we were before we came to that cross. And we thank you for that. And we ask that that cross would be a permanent part of our lives so that we might bear witness, faithful witness to our Savior. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, it's not quite 2,000 years yet, but it's getting close that Christians have been doing what we're doing here tonight, observing Good Friday. So all around the world today, people have been doing exactly that, in spite of the skeptics, in spite of the ignorant, in spite of the apathetic, in spite even of those who hate us, Christians, people both like and unlike you and me, remember this day really above all other days. And we remember it with both a sense of awe and wonder. We remember it whether we're celebrating it in a cathedral or behind closed doors of an illegal house church or in a simple building like this. The important thing is not so much where we are or what we look like or how we dress or the language we speak, but that we remember that supreme act of sacrifice made on our behalf and we know in spite of all of our differences that we, wherever we are, we who are named, named the name of Jesus Christ, we are the worldwide family of God. 
And this day is called Good Friday, even though it is the day on which Jesus died. An outsider, of course, might wonder just what we see in that day, which is good, when the leader of our faith, the author author and perfecter of that faith, was put to death on a cross, a Roman instrument of torture. And yet, in awe and wonder, we see both the most terrible and most wonderful of days, for on that day, Jesus died in our place and took our sins away. And while he hung on that cross, Jesus spoke seven different times. And Jim shared a little bit about one of those times, and uh, he told the thief on the cross that he would be with him in paradise. We refer to those times as the seven last words, seven messages to the world that he was dying to save. And for those of us come to know him in a personal way, they are really more precious to us than piles of cash or trainloads of gold. You know, the words of a dying man ought never to be taken lightly, but when the man is Jesus Christ, the only perfect person to ever live, the eternal Son of God, we ought to pay even more careful attention. And tonight we're going to consider just one of those seven last words. The first one, and the one which really explains why Christ was there on that cross in the first place. And we find it recorded for us in the same chapter that Jim was in a little while ago, in chapter 23 of Luke, and you can certainly join me there. And of course we'll have the text up on the screen in a little bit. So we come to our story at... A place, the place after Pilate, the Roman governor, gave way to the pressure of the religious leaders of that day who were seeking to have Jesus put to death. You see, they feared him, and even more, they feared what the Romans might do if things got out of hand. And so Pilate, uh, though he knew Jesus was innocent, gave in to their demands. And it's really sad to say that we're not surprised by Pilate's actions, nor those of the religious leaders. I think we understand it all too well, don't we? That really is the way of our world. It comes home more and more closely to us as the days get closer and closer to the final days. But that certainly is the way of the world. And verses 32 and 33 tell us what happened next after Pilate condemns him and after he was beaten and flogged. We read uh, that two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. The place of execution was called the skull, not because human skulls or any other kind of skull littered the ground, nor because there were skulls made there in the same way that the mafia speaks of making their bones, which simply means they kill someone, but because the place looked like a skull. It was a ghastly appearance, and it emphasized the horror of what was occurring there on that day. And it was on a hill so that uh, all those who were crucified were visible for everyone to see as they approached and left the city of Jerusalem. And that's where they led Jesus that day, a place of execution well known to all the people of that area, a place of sorrow and shame. And the text tells us they crucified him. 
And what's amazing about that statement is it simply says that and lets it go at that. You know, almost every other piece of literature that you can read, except for what you find in the Bible, when talking about the crucifixion, emphasizes the physical pain and torture. You only need to think about the movie that that Jim mentioned, The Passion of Christ, to get an idea of how things like that are usually handled by people. But that's not the case when you turn to the Gospels, nor any, really, of the biblical writings. They understood the truth that uh, Jesus really did endure great uh, physical pain there. But they understood something more. They understood that the real horror was to come when he was separated from the Father. For six hours he hung on the cross, and for the first three hours he suffered as any man might. And then at the middle of the day, the the sun went dark and the land was dark around him, signifying that the Father had turned his back on the Son. And that statement of the, the, the crucifixion is transcendent in its simplicity, and it points us away from the obvious and the sensational, and it points us to something beyond, to the sublime, that Christ took the sins of the whole world upon himself on that cross, and he died in our place. The only other comment about the crucifixion that Luke makes here is that there were two thieves nailed uh, there with him on their respective crosses. See, he was to die between two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. The Jewish leaders, no doubt, thought of this as a fitting statement of just who this man really was. And in one way, we may be saddened by that. You know, brave men really often do uh, go into battle and die together in battle. And, and, and I've read enough stories and known enough people in those situations and seen things like that, that if you were to ask someone in that situation, they might very well say to you that they would prefer no other company than that which they have right then as they are putting their lives on the line. But Jesus was not among the brave, nor among the pure or the good or the righteous. He was among sinners. And yet, in another way, how fitting it was. For for he spent his entire ministry in the company of all kinds of people. And he was accused of being the friend to sinners. And so he was. And so he is. He came to seek and to save the lost. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus came. He came for us. He came for those of us who will admit the truth that we are sinners. And here in this glorious place, Jesus fulfilled a prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah that he would be numbered among the transgressors, and he certainly was as he hung there between those two thieves. Verses 35 and 36 describe the scene in more detail for us. So the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, 
save yourself. Matthew Henry uh, captures well the insult of the soldiers when he wrote the Roman soldiers jeered at him as the king of the Jews. The people good enough for such a prince. A prince good enough for such a people. The religious leaders are pouring out their pent-up anger and hatred and they disgrace themselves by showing no pity for a dying man. They heap insults on him. They're the kind who would kick a person when he's down. And the people stood there watching, not doing anything, either good or bad. Those same people who a week earlier had hailed him as the coming king, who had benefited most from his ministry, they did nothing. He was numbered among the transgressors. His disciples had deserted him. We know on that day a very small group, a few women, and John the Apostle stood near, but they were powerless to do anything. His most immediate company was that of the thieves and then that of the soldiers who crucified him, and beyond them were the religious leaders and the crowds that jeered at him. And as if to add insult to injury, his clothing was also taken from him, and the soldiers gambled for it as part of their pay. And just those few verses, Luke communicates the horror and the ugliness of that day without any real sensationalism. In calm understatement, he describes those moments leading up to the crucifixion and the things which immediately followed. And then there, in the midst of all of that, the the pain and the sorrow, the humiliation, the rejection, the apparent defeat. We hear Jesus' first word from the cross, and it's a prayer. And it begins this way in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Jesus prays. That's what he's doing here. He's praying. Anyone might be expected to do that kind of thing when they're facing death, although the thieves didn't do it, at least uh, not at the beginning. And we know from the other text that one of them never did pray. But Jesus doesn't pray in the way that we would expect, does he? I mean, we would expect if we were in that situation, what we would what we do, we would pray for God's peace or God's deliverance or that God would take the pain away. Or that he'd be able to bear up under what was upon him. But that's not what he prayed at all. You see, he had already prayed that. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? He had already prayed that. He'd already won that battle there. Instead, he prays something different. Or we might expect someone in that situation to pray that God would smite his enemies, right? I mean, this certainly was the attitude of one of the thieves on the cross, he would have been glad to have his enemies smited. That's what many people do in those situations. But instead, Jesus prays for forgiveness. You know, that doesn't strike us strange, does it? I mean, you, you hear me say that, and, and you've read it, and and thought about it and we sing about it and it doesn't strike us strange because that's what Christians have been doing down through the centuries and today in our world thousands are facing persecution and death 
and they're still forgiving their enemies. But the only reason that we do that is because Jesus has done it first here on the cross. He prays for those who put him there. On that cross, he seeks their forgiveness. He goes on to say something else that we don't uh, quite get, I don't think, when we first read it. He says this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You know, in one sense, they knew very well what they were doing. They knew well enough that they were killing an innocent man. I mean, Pilate blamed the Jewish leaders when he consented to their wishes. The soldiers would have said they were only following orders. The Jewish leaders were convinced that Christ was a menace, so they had him put to death, even though there wasn't sufficient grounds to do that. The disciples were defeated. And the people and the thieves and the soldiers jeered at a dying and innocent man. But in another sense, they really didn't know what they were doing. Partly they didn't know it because there was a veil over Christ's glory. The Son of God was on earth as a man. And a man who could be nailed to a cross. So partly they didn't understand because of that. But also partly they didn't understand because there was a veil over their own hearts. They were sinners. And yet that sin brought that blindness. And if Christ is going to forgive sin... He will even forgive the blindness caused by that sin. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That really is amazing love. It really is something astounding. It really is, how do I say it? It's like nothing else that we would find anywhere else in the world. No other religion has anything like it. Father, forgive them. But you know, there's really one other question that, that I think we need to ask here. And, and that is, who is Jesus referring to when he prayed that prayer? When he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Who is he referring to? I mean, was he referring to the soldiers who had just nailed him to the cross? Or was he referring to Pilate who had given in to the political pressure or the Jewish leaders who had turned him over to the power of the state or the people who had turned his back on him or even his own disciples when they deserted him? The answer is yes. Yes to all of those. Every one of them were included in that prayer. But that prayer, you understand, was not limited to just them. They became only examples. If he could forgive them those things, then he could and would forgive anyone who comes to him. As he did, just a few verses further on that Jim talked about tonight, when he forgave that thief hanging on that cross who didn't even have a chance to do something good. There's a song that I think we close with tonight. It's one of my favorite songs at this time of year. The song says, were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? 
Do you know the answer to that question? Yes, you were. In a very real sense, you were there because your sins were taken by him in his body on that cross. That's why he went there. It's a whole reason he went to that cross was to pay for our sins. And in the midst of his pain and suffering, sadness and sorrow, the horror that was there, he prayed those words, Father, forgive them. An amazing, amazing love. Can I can I show you something that I do with the kids at Little Lamb or at Awana to maybe try to explain a little bit about what happened on that cross? So I, I tell the kids that if we just take a book like this, the Bible, but we'll use it, and, and, and we think of this as our sin, and we understand that God is on one side and we're on the other side. And because of our sin, we can't get to God. Sin stands between us. And when Christ went on that cross, he took our sin away. He forgave us. But you understand something, don't you? You still have to go to God. The sin is gone but you still have to go to God. And if you do, I don't care what it is you have done in this life. I don't care how bad you've been or how few good of things you've done. I don't care how much you know or how little you know about the Bible or religion or anything else. The sin has been taken away. God is there waiting for you. And if you go to him, and he will save you, and he will make you his own. Because his dying son asked it of him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Would you pray with me, please? Father, um, we really are grateful to you for your plan of salvation. We really are grateful, Lord, that we didn't have to do anything to earn it. In fact, we know there's nothing we can do. The only way that we could be saved is for you to do what you did and send your son. But he has come. He has gone to the cross. He has taken our sins away. He has prayed that we would be forgiven. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of that. And help us, please. Help us to take that message everywhere we go. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.